Good morning, Desert Springs. It is so good to be with you here this morning. Uh, I bring greetings from the Saints of Third Avenue Baptist Church, where I'm one of the elders. Uh, you would know several of our members, the Kelly kids, and so I'm sure they send their greetings as well. And uh, it's just a, a marvelous privilege to be with you this morning. I want you to know that every so often in our pastoral prayer, uh, we're praying specifically by name for your congregation and for your preaching pastor, Ryan, as he brings you the word. And uh, it's just a blessing to be with you here this morning. A passport can be a really useful thing. See, if you're a citizen of the United States, your passport says the following phrase on the inside. The Secretary of State of the United States of America hereby requests all whom it may concern to permit the citizen national of the United States named herein to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of need to give all lawful aid and protection. It's a really fancy way of saying the person who holds this is an American and you would do well to take care of them while you're in your, they're in your country. See, it's pretty much necessary to travel outside of the country with a passport. And the US passport is honored in pretty much every country except North Korea under normal non-COVID circumstances. I don't really think about the value of my own passport as a Canadian unless I'm finding myself in a country in a little bit of a hairy situation where I might need the type of lawful aid or protection that the passport is asking for. A few years ago, I traveled to the country of Ouagadougou, uh, sorry, Burkina Faso, to the capital of Ouagadougou. I was there with my dad and another friend, both of them older than me. They were a bit worried. You see, there'd been some terrorist activity there in Burkina Faso, and we were assured that it was safe when we were visiting, but we did request, uh, sorry, we did frequent a restaurant that had been attacked two years earlier. 18 people had been killed in that restaurant. We would be searched by armed police before each meal, and we would memorize the route back to the compound that we were staying about 10 blocks away. See, the three of us were all Canadian citizens, and the facility that we were staying in just happened to be adjacent to the Canadian embassy, which was very convenient. In fact, the two properties shared a wall. We were very aware of the value of our passport as we traveled around Ouagadougou. We even went next door to the embassy and introduced ourselves to the gentleman in charge of security. His name was Liberty, which is an odd name for a Canadian, but that was his name. <laughs> Glad you got that joke. <laughs> It was assuring to walk through the front door, flash our Canadian passports, and walk around the embassy. Should anything happen when we were there in Burkina Faso, our passports were a means of protection, and our identity as Canadians secured the privileges that would not have been available to anybody else other than Canadians in that place. Now, the embassy didn't care where I lived, they didn't care what I did for work. They didn't even care what hockey team I cheered for. The only thing that mattered was I was a Canadian. Our citizenship, the nation that we're united to, has meaning to us. It comes with rights and privileges. It grants us access to those rights and privileges all around the world. And it marks us off as citizens to anybody who asks. It shows our ties to our country. As Christians, our greatest unity is not with our country. 
It's with other Christians. Our allegiance to Jesus and the shared benefits that we have through him give us the greatest unity in the world. And instead of gathering together in an embassy like I did in Burkina Faso, we gather together in local embassies like Desert Springs where we declare the glories of our king and the benefits of our heavenly citizenship. Our unity is constantly threatened, church. It is threatened by the spiritual forces that we read about in the book of Ephesians where we'll be today, and it is threatened by our own sinful tendency to prioritize our difference, differences over the unity that we have in Jesus. Our passage today is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. I encourage you to find your place in your Bible. See, the book of Ephesians was written to Christians in the city of Ephesus. Side note, I actually got to walk in Ephesus a few weeks ago with Caleb and Leah Batchelor. That was a pretty good treat. I had no idea where I was going to get that into the sermon, but there it was. <laughs> Still got some dust from the, from, from the streets in my shoes, I'm sure. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. We read about this in Acts chapter 19, and these Ephesians would have heard Paul's preaching and teaching a number of times. And in this letter, Paul is underlining and reiterating what he had taught them in person. The book of Ephesians can be separated into two sections, and it's pretty easy to divide. The first section is the first three chapters, and the second section is the last three chapters. The first section outlines gospel facts, or gospel indicatives. The second half gives gospel instructions, or we can call those gospel imperatives. And there's two key themes of this book that stand out. One theme is that of powers and rulers, the spiritual forces of evil. The second theme is the church. See, Paul writes extensively on the nature and the mission of the church throughout this letter. Our passage this morning is in the first half of Ephesians where Paul is highlighting those gospel facts and he's specifically teaching on how the gospel forms and unites the church. Starting in verse 11 of chapter two. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, are, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
I think the main point of this passage is that Jesus initiated a new covenant in which Christians have been reconciled to God and united to each other. We should carefully watch over that unity. I'll say that again. The main point of this passage is that Jesus initiated a new covenant in which Christians have been reconciled to God and united to each other. We should carefully watch over that unity. We're going to divide today's text into three sections. Those will form my three points. And when we consider these points together, I think they give us the perfect antidote to the disease of division in the church. First, verse 11 to 12, we're going to see, remember that we were separated. Remember, church, that we were separated. Point number two, verses 13 to 18, Church, recollect that we are reconciled. Recollect that we are reconciled. And my third point today will be found in verses 19 to 22. Recall that we are united. Recall that we are united. So first, remember that we were separated. We were divided from the chosen people of the old covenant, and we were separated from God by our sin. That's a fact. One of the main charges that Paul makes in this letter is to eagerly maintain unity in the church, Ephesians. Eagerly maintain it. We don't have too many particulars about what was going on in this this time in Ephesus in the church, but we see that Paul cared a great deal that the church was to be united. I think we conclude, can conclude, based on what we read in chapters 2 and 3 in Ephesians, that there was disunity between Jewish and Gentile believers. I think we can see that. See, the ethnic division between Jews and Gentiles was a real problem. Many Jews would not even enter, enter into a Gentile home or vice versa. If a Jewish man or woman married a Gentile, a funeral was held, signifying his or her death to the Jewish religion, to the Jewish faith, as far as their family was concerned, that Jewish person was dead. Jewish and Gentile Christians with Jewish and Greek customs were disunified on non-gospel issues. And so one of the things that Paul communicates in this letter is all of the reasons for the Ephesians to strive towards unity. He wants to motivate them. And he does so by reminding them in the first half of the letter of core truths of the gospel. Chapter 1, he reminds them of the spiritual blessings that they've received in, in Christ. He tells them how thankful he is for them and how he prays for them. In the beginning of chapter 2, he reminds them that they were dead in their trespasses. They were dead in their sin, but God made them alive by his grace and his mercy. They were saved by grace through faith. They weren't saved by good works. They were saved for good works. Now Paul's reminding them of another thing, starting in verse 11. This next section points out the unity that they all now share in Christ. And when we read verse 11, we can see the social division between Jew and Gentile. Paul writes, remember that at one time Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. 
Paul's writing primarily to the Gentiles in the church, but he's sure to remind those in the church that were Jewish Christians that circumcision is only a physical and external act. That's why he said it's made in the flesh by hands. In Romans 2, Paul writes that he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and true circumcision is that of the heart by the spirit. In Romans 4, he writes that Abraham was saved prior to his circumcision. It's important. His circumcision was an external sign. In Romans 4, verse 7, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it. Paul writes, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. See, in the early church, the matter of circumcision was a massive issue. In Acts 15, we read about the Jerusalem Council, which had been convened when a number of men from Judea set about teaching that you needed to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas had been appointed to go to Jerusalem, and along the way to Jerusalem, they were told of stories of Gentiles coming to faith, bringing joy to all of the brothers who listened. And some of the Jewish Christians belonged to the Pharisees, and they argued that in order to be saved, you had to keep the Mosaic laws. Those were essential to salvation. Now, the Jerusalem council that convened was clear that this was not so. Gentiles were not to be burdened with the Mosaic law. And still the Judaizers, as they were called, continued to cause division in the early church on these matters. And Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles, found himself constantly combating this erroneous teaching. Paul's writing to the Gentiles first. He says, Gentiles of Ephesians, remember that you were once separated socially from Israel. That social separation was marked off by circumcision. He's also saying, even more importantly, Ephesian Gentiles, remember that you were once separated from God. It's not that you were just separated socially from Israel, but the bigger problem is that you were separated from God. In verse 12, we see four distinct phrases that outline their and our status before salvation. They were separated from Christ. They were strangers to the covenant of promise. They were without hope, and they were without God. Desert Springs Church, before Christ, we were separated from Christ. We were strangers to the covenant of promise. We were without hope, and we were without God. See, throughout the Old Testament, promises of a Messiah had been made, 
We hear that echoed in the passage from Zechariah that we heard this morning. The Jewish people were told that a Messiah would come. The Gentiles did not receive these prophecies. They were, as Ephesians 4.18 states, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. To be a Gentile before Christ was to be completely ignorant of the promises of God. You had no access to them. Now, it wasn't the keeping of the Mosaic law that saved Jewish people under the old covenant. There were circumcised people, or children of the flesh, as Paul calls them in Romans 9, that did not place their faith in the promised Messiah. Paul writes that not all who are descended from Israel are children of God, but only children of the promise. These were people who were saved by their faith in the promise of the coming Messiah. Yes, they strived to keep the law because that's what God commanded. But they were saved by faith. Gentiles, under the old covenant again, did not even receive that promise. They were disconnected from it. That's what it means that they were strangers to the covenant of promise. God had revealed himself to the Jewish people over and over and over again for 2,000 years. He had chosen them as his people and he had made a covenant with them. Christians today, we really don't talk about circumcision and uncircumcision as causes for disunity in the church. But we have other issues that cause disunity in the church, don't we? And I'm sure right now, if we took a few seconds, a myriad of disunifying things could come to your mind. The issue of unity is as important today as it was 2,000 years ago in the church in Ephesus. Did you know that today there's an actual church growth strategy that promotes gathering people of similar ages, similar ethnicities, similar socioeconomic levels, and forming churches comprised of people who are alike to one another? Look around this room and you'll see people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. Apparently, apparently that doesn't help a church to grow, so the experts say. See, this strategy is called the homogeneous principle, and it's crept into church planting strategies here in America and all around the world. And the idea is that if someone joins a church where everybody else is like them, that's going to make the church grow faster. What a disastrous idea. What an anti-gospel idea. The world loves to highlight differences. It presses in on them. It presses in on them. 200 years ago, the missionary William Carey served in India where there was and still is a caste system. It was prevalent in Carey's day and he endeavored to show a visible unity in the church that was diametrically opposed to the caste system seen in Indian uh, Hinduism. See, the idea between the caste system, behind the caste system is depending on what family you were born into, you were assigned a caste. And in order to be a good Hindu, you lived according to your caste. So the top caste is the Brahmins. And if you were born a Brahmin, you could serve as a Hindu priest. You were seen as the, the top dog. And then at the very bottom of the caste system, 
are the Dalits or the untouchables who are considered even below humans. That caste system still exists in places within India and growing up in Canada, I had friends who were Indians and they couldn't even marry people of different castes even in Canada in the 20th century. 200 years ago, William Carey walks into the system and he decided that he was gonna gather Christians of all castes, backgrounds. And he wanted to stress their unity, so he used a common cup in the Lord's Supper. One cup was, one cup was passed from one person to another. And get this, Carey ensured that the people of the lowest caste were the ones to drink from the common cup first. And then it made its way along to those of the highest caste. And in this way, William Carey enforced that these Indian Christians were no longer alienated from each other because of their caste. They were united together with Jesus. Christians, we should not live according to the world's divisions or standards. We should hope and pray for unity in our churches. That's a unity that can only come from God we should pray for a diversity that reflects different nationalities and different socioeconomic backgrounds. Think about it. Today, in local churches around the world, Russians and Ukrainians gathered together to worship the Lord. You don't see that on the news. In parts of the Middle East, Israeli Christians and Palestinian Christians gathered together to worship the Lord together. I've got good friends in Ireland where 30 years ago, people who would have gladly blown each other up now worship together in local churches from Protestant backgrounds and Catholic backgrounds. How is that possible? Only, only the Lord can do that. See, our unity is not found in our national identity. It's not found in how we were raised. When poor and rich gather together to worship the Lord together, it shows that unity in Christ trumps socioeconomic status. And the one way that we continue to work to, toward unity in the local church is to remember, remember that we once were separated from each other. We once were separated from the Lord. That's not the way things are anymore, church. We're together. Remember what we were all like before Christ, before we understood the gospel. We were darkened in our understanding. It's easy to read passages in Ephesians where it says, you were once darkened your understanding, and we can almost take ourselves out of the text and think that Paul's only writing to the Ephesians. I was struck as we sang that song of asking the Lord to illuminate our hearts before the preaching of the word this morning. It's a miracle that God illuminates our, our eyes and opens up our hearts, isn't it? We were darkened. That wasn't just the church in Ephesus. Christian, every single one of us was separated from the covenant of promise and we were darkened in our understanding. That was every one of our pasts. Remember, church, that you were once separated from God and from each other. Second, second point, recall that Christ has reconciled us. Recall that Christ has reconciled us. Paul reminds the Ephesians and us that Jesus, who we were once separated from, has initiated the peace. At one time, we were separate from Christ. We were dead in our trespasses, and we had no hope of coming to Christ on our own. 
Jesus was the one, the only one who could initiate peace. And the way he did that was by shedding his blood for our trespasses. That's what Paul means when he writes to the Ephesians that you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off. Only Jesus, by shedding his blood, could bring you near. And not only were we reconciled to God, but we were also reconciled to each other. Jewish people who were saved in the Old Covenant were not saved by their adherence to the Mosaic Law. We've already covered that. They were saved by faith in the coming Messiah. Now, they made sacrifices under the Mosaic Law. And these sacrifices were made by priests on their behalf. These were a sign of the ultimate sacrifice that would be paid for by Christ on the cross. It was all pointing forward. Every time a lamb was slaughtered in the courtyard, it was signifying one day there will be the lamb who is slaughtered. One day there will be a lamb, the lamb who is slaughtered. See, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the old covenant. It was given to the people of Israel and he instituted a new covenant. So with Jesus, old covenant gone, new covenant is here. And it fulfills the promise to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile that was tangibly felt in the congregation in Ephesus, it was broken down when Jesus abolished the law of commandments with his death on the cross. The wall of sacrifices and ceremonial laws and feasts broken down. The requirement of circumcision abolished. The requirement of animal sacrifice, abolished. Laws concerning feasts and cleanliness and diet, abolished. With Christ's death, Jew and Gentile were reconciled to God and to each other. Paul writes that we were both reconciled to God in one body. John Stott, writing about this passage, said that God turned away his own wrath and we seeing his great love, turned away our wrath also. You get that? God turned away his wrath that was aimed towards us, and in response, we turn away our wrath that we once held towards each other. The Christian who comprehends the death of Christ on the cross and the grace of God in our lives, we strive together to live in unity with one another. Various commentaries disagree on whether the reference to Jesus' preaching of peace applies to his early ministry before the cross, or his ministry after the, pro the cross, or his crucifixion itself, or his ongoing work through the church. A lot of people disagree. The gospel was preached to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and those who were near, the people of Israel. Today, church... We continue to preach peace throughout the world. We preach peace in North Africa. We preach peace in Guatemala. We preach peace amongst the Navajo Nation. That's what we do. We preach peace by declaring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who shed his blood to save sinners. That those who put their faith in him can be forgiven of their sins and be united to him. The wall between Jew and Gentile in the temple courts was not the only wall that could come down through the work of Christ. 
It did come down, but it wasn't the only one. In Matthew 27, verse 51, we read of the curtain of the temple that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died. This was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. See, the Holy of Holies could only be entered once a year by the high priest and only after there was this elaborate ceremony that was done by which the, whole, the high priest atoned for the sins and his sins and for those of the people he represented. And the Holy of Holies reminded God's people that they could not carelessly enter into his presence because of their sin. It was a visible reminder. And the tearing of the veil from top to bottom signified that there was no more need for the Holy of Holies. No longer did God's people have to be reminded that their sin separated them from God because the ultimate sacrifice had been made. Hebrews 10 verse 19 to 20 states that we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain that is through his flesh. Jesus opened up the curtain. No more wall of hostility between us and God. We now have access, right? Scripture calls us a priesthood. We don't need a priest anymore to represent us before God. That wall's been torn down and we now have access to God himself. Christians, we're reconciled to God through Christ. We are reconciled and united to each other through Christ. We can have access to our holy God because of the work of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed for our sins. Remember, the second part of this antidote for division in the church is to recall that Christ has reconciled us. He's also given us unity. That's the third and final point this morning. Recall that we've been united. United both to God and to each other. There's three distinct uh, pictures that are used in this passage to illustrate the unity that we now have in Christ. Paul describes us as fellow citizens of the kingdom, members of God's household, and stones that form God's temple. Look at those three pictures. One, we're fellow citizens of the kingdom. Two, we're members of God's household. And three, we're stones that form God's temple. In verse 19, Paul writes that we are no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow citizens of the kingdom. For almost 2,000 years, God had revealed himself almost solely to the Jewish people, and he had allowed the Gentile nations to walk in their ways. To be a Gentile was to be separated from Christ. The Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. It was to be without hope and without God. See, God had always intended to bring salvation to, the nation, to those outside of the nation of Israel. That was always in his plans. When he chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he told them that all nations would be blessed through them. As we read through the Old Testament, we read of God's heart for the nations and of the promises that God would bless his people with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 19, we read of Paul's journey to Ephesus and how he found a number of disciples who had not heard of the Holy Spirit. Yet, yet alone, they received the Holy Spirit when they were with Paul. And after he prays for them, they received the Holy Spirit and it astounded the Jewish observers. Why? 
Gentiles just received the Holy Spirit. Who would have thought? Those Gentiles, the uncircumcised, those guys that we hated and we used to do funerals when one of our sons married one of their daughters. They now have the Holy Spirit. Same thing happened in Acts 10 when the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles who believed what, Paul, what Peter had taught them regarding the gospel. Acts 10.44 records that the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Not only are Jews and Gentiles now citizens of the same kingdom, but they're now members of the same family. Members of the same family. That's what it means that we're members of God's household. That's what Paul means there. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul writes that we were adopted by God through Jesus Christ. With God as our Father, we're now co-heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8.17. We're co-heirs with Christ and we're brothers and sisters to each other as Christians. Before we, were as Christian, before we were Christians, we were described as sons of disobedience. Now we're no longer sons of disobedience. We're sons of the Most High. And our adoption was secured by the obedience of Jesus on our behalf. That's what it means that we were adopted through Jesus Christ. We're all from diverse family backgrounds. We have different experiences with parents or siblings, but in this church, you're all family. In the church, we are all family. How often do you hear the word brother or sister used here in Desert Springs? I don't know if it's just a Kentucky thing and we only do it in Third Avenue, but I hear it a lot at Third Avenue. Now sometimes, if I'm honest, I use it when I'm walking towards a guy and I don't know his name. <laughs> Whew, it's like the perfect, we don't, the world does not have this. They use like pal or friend and sometimes it's weird, but there's just something when you walk up to someone, it's like, hey brother. When I preached this at Third Avenue, I had a few people call me out and say, you call me brother a lot, is that because you don't know my name? <laughs> but there's some very important spiritual meaning behind that. Brother. Sister, those, mean, those words mean a lot. The final illustration of our unity in this text is the temple. In the old covenant, the temple was where God dwelled. It was where people worshipped and where priests made sacrifices to atone for the sins of the Jewish people. Under the new covenant, the people of God is where he dwells. And in verses 20 to 22, Paul writes that Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. And it's a new temple where every believer is joined together as a dwelling place for God. Now, a cornerstone was the very most important structural piece of ancient buildings. Every other piece of that building would be aligned according to the cornerstone. So if your cornerstone wasn't set properly, your building was unsafe. It was unsafe. Jesus is our cornerstone. When we sing that song, Christ Alone, Cornerstone, there's an architectural meaning behind that. And we are aligned and united together as bricks within the temple of God with Jesus Christ as the foundation. We're aligned according to him. 
Notice too in verse 22 that the structure's growing. The structure's growing. It's not complete yet. By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit through the church's evangelism, stones continued to be laid down. Yesterday morning in the seminar we had, we learned of three stones that were added in North Africa through the work of individuals sent out by this local church. Still growing. By God's grace, more stones to be laid down. Meeting with some of your care team yesterday, I was hearing about stones laid down in Guatemala by workers supported by this local church. Still growing. We still got work to do. Right? I know there's a 2 in 22 campaign that Desert Springs is going through this year on evangelism. That's brickland. That's brickland. And it's a miraculous thing. It's a miraculous thing. Because here's, here's the deal. You can't, you can't add the brick by yourself. You can't add the brick by yourself. It's way too heavy. There's only one person who can lift that brick and add it to the household of God. And he does it. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, friend, let me tell you, you are separated from God. Your sin has made a separation between you and God, and you can only be brought near by placing your faith in Jesus. He perfectly fulfilled the old covenant by living a perfect life, and then shedding his blood as a sacrifice, and in doing so, he initiated a new covenant. And three days after dying, he rose again. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the grave, you will be saved. You can be reconciled to God and you can be united to him and in him. If you sit here today and you're not a Christian, please hear me. You're separated from God and from man. But the good news is that you can be reconciled to God and man. You can be united to God and man. And you cannot, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot do this on your own. It is offered to you by grace. Offered to you by grace. So friend, I urge you, turn from your sin. Trust in God. Put your faith in Jesus. And Christians today, humbly remember who we were before Christ. Remember that we were once separated from God and from each other. Recollect that we've been reconciled to God through Christ and recall the unity that we have to God and to each other in Christ. Circumcision was the oath sign of the old covenant. It was a sign of an individual's entrance into the old covenant. Likewise, baptism is a sign of an individual's entrance into the new kingdom, into the new covenant. When a church baptizes individuals, it affirms the professions of faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And just as citizens of a country get a passport when they put up their hand and prove that they were a citizen of that that country, baptism from a local church is like receiving a passport. And that passport accompanies that individual and allows other churches and Christians to identify him as a citizen of the kingdom. But how does that work? Well, I mentioned earlier, we've got two Kellys as current members of Third Avenue Baptist Church, and they would have went through membership interviews, and the very first question is, are you a Christian? Yes. Have you been baptized? Yes. 
That's the flashing of the passport. What it's signifying is that this congregation at one point affirmed the witness of that individual and had them baptized and they've got their passport. And now traveling all around the world, Christians can hold up their passports. Yes, I'm a baptized follower of Jesus Christ. It's an oath sign. This coming Wednesday, you all are celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's kind of weird being a guest preacher, exhorting people to go and celebrate in the Lord's Supper. I won't be there to take it with you. But this room should be full. It should be full. What better thing to do on Wednesday night than to gather together with your church family and participate in the Lord's Supper together? In the Lord's Supper, the church signals its ongoing commitment to Christ, the new covenant, and its unity to each other in Christ. See, we're warned in Scripture to make sure that there aren't any issues between us and to handle them before the Lord's Supper. That is a beautiful gift towards the unity of the church. We shouldn't be coming to the Lord's Supper angry with one another or having unreconciled issues. Why? Because we're unified. We're family. Friends, we live in an increasingly fracturing world. Everywhere we look, there's signs of division. But as we gather together in our local churches around the world, our kingdom embassies, we should see the greatest display of unity on earth. We were separated from God and from each other. We were reconciled to God and to each other. And we've been united to God and to each other. That is incredible news, isn't it? And as Christians, we don't just keep that news to ourselves. We share it with our neighbors. We send some of our own members to the ends of the earth, to places like North Africa to share that news, to share the message of reconciliation with our God through the death of his son. And as people respond in faith to that message, we baptize them. We give them their passport. We gather them in local churches there, kingdom embassies with new citizens who are baptized. They recognize each other as members of the same local church, and they live together in a supernatural unity that comes only from the Lord, and the whole watching world in that community stops and looks and says, what's different about those people? It's the gospel. Citizens united by the gospel to God and to each other. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the truth of your word. Lord, I don't know how many people here are ethnically Jewish, but the reality is most of us, Lord, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, could not enter into covenant with you. Lord, we thank you for the death of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for the kingdom promises that it affords us. Lord, I pray for this church that they would be united to you and united to each other with a unity that the whole world watches and wants to know more about. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.